You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. It was originally my intention to finish Romans 4 uh, this morning, but... um, So continue to study and continue to pray about this. There's a real gem here in verse 13 that I think is so fitting and and really providentially uh, appropriate for where some of us are right now that I thought maybe we ought to just pull alongside of the road and uh, take a look at what's going on here, and especially in the first part of verse 13. So this morning's message really is going to focus uh, primarily on the first half of Romans 4 and verse 13 which reads for the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning, Father. We ask that you would be pleased, Father, to teach us and instruct us from your word, Father, Uh, We recognize that it is your good pleasure to do so. That is why you have given us your word. Father, we sit at your feet this morning, Father, that uh, you may uh, give us understanding uh, of the many texts we'll look at this morning, Father, and help us, O Lord, to put all of this together, that, Father, the, the great hope and the great picture that's before us, Father, would be illumined in our hearts, Father, very clearly, and that our our faith uh, would be strengthened, that our our joy in Christ Jesus would be refreshed, and, Father, that um, uh, we would would truly find ourselves, Lord, uh, having heard a word from you. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. There's a word in verse 13 there that is really uh, an important word for really the rest of Romans 4. And you'll see the, the word promise, the word promise. If you if you read through Romans 4, verse 13, uh, through the end of the chapter, you'll discover that the word promise appears and it, 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 the word appears multiple times. And even when the word promise doesn't appear, there's often an allusion uh, to the promise. So one of the major themes through the rest of Romans 4 uh, is indeed uh, the promise. And you'll notice in verse 13 that we have a promise to Abraham. And we're not left to guess exactly what promise uh, Paul has in mind, are we? Uh, Because he tells us, uh, namely, that this is a promise that Abraham would be heir of the world. You you see that, uh, it's pretty clear to see there. Now, the reader of Genesis, the one who is familiar with the promises that are made to Abraham, might be scratching their head right now and thinking, well, maybe I missed something as I was reading uh, through Genesis. Uh, I don't recall, I, I can recall Abraham being promised the land of Canaan, but I don't recall any verse that explicitly states where Abraham would be heir of the world. Uh, So 
we ask ourselves, well, what's Paul up to here? Well, uh, what Paul is doing is he's summarizing a number of texts. And uh, one of the things, many of you have heard me say this, you've heard me say this in private, because I usually say these things in private, but I probably most of you have heard me say to you, uh, we don't really own a text or a promise in Scripture until we can what? Until we can look in the Bible and see it for ourselves. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that, I, that, are, that is really important to me is that you don't believe these things simply because Rick is saying so. Um, uh, I want you to believe these things because you can look into the scriptures and you can see them for yourselves. So when you have a weak moment, you can open up your Bible and you can say, well, here it is. I can see it. I can see it very clearly for myself. That's when we truly own it. And to get this one, we're going to have to roll our sleeves up and look at a number of of passages, we're going to look around a little bit in the, in the scriptures this morning. Put your bulletin in Romans 4 to save the place, and I, I invite you to, to turn back to Genesis, uh, Genesis 12, actually. Many of the passages that we're going to look at this morning are, are found right in this vicinity uh, of Genesis 12 through 22. While you're finding the place, just by way of introduction, I mean, uh, Abraham, when he's first introduced to us, his name is not Abraham, it's Abram, as many of you well know. And he's introduced to us in chapter 11, verse 27, as son of Terah. And uh, uh, who is Abram, son of Terah? Well, he's just some guy, 75-year-old man at the time of his calling, uh, living in Mesopotamia. And Joshua tells us that he was serving other gods there. Uh, so, uh, in essence, um, I, I, who is Abraham? Well, he's just he's some guy who's doing it, what everyone else is doing. He is, he's worshiping all these other gods, false gods. And in verse 12, uh, he is called by God. Verse 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Uh, here we have a promise uh, that uh, Abraham is going to have many, many descendants, if you will. Uh, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Now, keep in mind, Abraham is 75 years old at the time of his calling. And his wife has not been able to have children. So, I mean time we reach 75 if we haven't had any children i think we're it's pretty safe to say that that's just not uh in the cards for us uh right i, I i'm seeing a, a special smile from the ladies in the group here <laughs> which i'm trying to tug out of you and it was a little bit hard but there it comes you guys look much better when you're smiling than, than like when you're sitting like almost like your seat's got something wrong with it it's defective or something uh but yeah, at 75 years old, this is a really a tremendous promise. It's a promise that uh, God will make him into a great nation. It takes people to do that, doesn't it? And if we look at chapter 13 and verse 16, this is on another occasion where God uh, comes to Abraham and he says in chapter 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring as what? The dust of the earth. Uh, Again, this may pull another 
smell out of you. I mean, dust is the enemy of the house, is it not? Um, how much dust is there in the average house? You know, Emily would probably be one of the most qualified people to answer that question, being that she's in that line of work. Uh, if you could count all the dust particles in the average house, what would be the tally? How many would you come up with? Lots. Here, uh, Abraham is being told that his offspring is going to be not the dust of the average household, but as the dust of the entire world. Uh, of course, there's, uh, the, 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 this is a massive, massive amount of people. If we turn to chapter 15 and verse 5, we also find on another occasion where God reiterates the promise. And here we find Abraham, if you will, has struggling. In verse 15, uh, or chapter 15, verse 1, uh, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You see, it seems Abram's wavering a bit there, doesn't it? At the very least, he's struggling. I want to be a little careful about the word wavering because we're going to come to that next week. Uh, but he's obviously struggling. Uh, he's asking God, what are you going to, what, what will you give me uh, for I continue childless? Abram, uh, uh, Abram says in verse three, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him Quote, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse five, he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I love talking to our vets who have been over in the Holy Land. And one of the things that every one of them has told me is at night, the view of the stars is incredible. It's, it's not like Pittsburgh, you know. At night, the view of the stars is spectacular. And we know from, from um, pictures that we've seen that there, there's stars are everywhere, aren't they? And one of the extraordinary things that is said about God in Scripture is that he names, he knows all the stars by name. Uh, perhaps would be like knowing each particle of dust uh, by name. Uh, it's an incredible thing. And here, numerous descendants are being promised to Abraham. Huh. Now, he's much older than 75 at this point in time, and he's still without child. But my point this morning is, uh, Paul is summarizing several promises, and one of those promises is numerous descendants. Another promise is land. If you go back to chapter 12, and verse 1, which we've just read, uh, here, land is promised right from the start, isn't it? As soon as God calls Abraham, the very first promise is to go to the land that I will show you. Now go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. If you look to chapter 13, and in this particular chapter, you, some of you will be very familiar with the story of Abraham and Lot separating. Uh, Abraham's uh, herds are quite large. Lot's herds are quite large. 
It requires a lot of grazing pasture to support large herds. And here they are uh, making their way through the, uh, uh, through the, the land and the land is not suitable to support all of them. And Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen begin to grumble with one another. So Abraham says, listen, the land is before us. He says to Lot, you know, choose a direction. You go, you go one way, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Or you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And you know the story. And, and Lot and Abraham uh, separate. And we're told that Abraham uh, goes off into the land of Canaan. Verse 12, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan uh, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Uh, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Verse 14, And the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, he said, lift your eyes and look from the place where you, uh, where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Uh, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, verse 17, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So we hear, see here the promise uh, of land. So we have the promise of, of offspring being as numerous as the dust or as numerous as the stars. And we see the land, and at least this point, the land really is, is, is that's in view here is the land of Canaan, isn't it? Uh, the land of Canaan. But there's another promise that's being put together here, and it's uh, found in chapter 12. If you go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 3. In fact, for context's sake, let's look at verse 2 and 3 together. God is in his initial calling to Abram. He says, I will make you of a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I would make this third category a blessing. We have descendants. We have land. We have a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And you've heard me make reference to this last portion of the promise many times. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this last promise is reiterated in a number of places, namely that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you turn to chapter 18 and uh, in this chapter, and by the way, I, the outline that I'm using this morning for all of this, there are copies of this on the back table in case like you're like, wow, all those scripture verses, I'm never going to remember those. I couldn't write all this out. Well, I just made copies of what I'm using, so they're all for you back there on the table after the service. If you're inclined, you can, you can pick a copy up. But in chapter 18, Abraham gets this mysterious visit from these three visitors, doesn't he? It's very mysterious. We're told that the Lord is speaking to him through this visitation. And in verse uh, 16, I suppose, we could go to verse 16. Um, or verse 17, let's look at verse 17. The Lord says, speaking to Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Actually, speaking, the, the visitors are speaking among themselves. Um, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation 
and all of the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed in him. You see, there's a there's repetition of that of that verse. But you'll notice that um, this this promise is expanding beyond the land of Canaan, obviously. In order for all the families of the of the earth to be blessed through Abraham, uh, obviously this blessing is going to have to transcend the boundaries of the land of Canaan, isn't it? If we turn to chapter 22, we'll find this promise repeated. And of course, chapter 22, I've been making reference uh, to chapter 22. That's the chapter where uh, Abraham is told he he has finally received his son. Uh, His son now is uh, still quite young, uh, uh, but he has received the promised son, Isaac. And the Lord tells him to offer him as a burnt offering on the... uh, uh, on Mount Moriah, and we have in earlier messages we've been talking about that. What does Abraham do? Uh, he does the unthinkable. I mean, he takes he takes Isaac up to the mountain, and uh, uh, he is about to offer him. Uh, verse nine, if you will, twenty two, verse nine. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there. He laid wood in order, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But verse 11, the angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And in verse, if you skip down to verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. You see a reiteration of the promise of numerous descendants. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. I'd love to go into that one this morning, but we don't have time. But verse 18, and in your offspring shall what? All the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, we could continue on. We would discover that this promise is then given to Isaac and the promise is then given to Jacob as we continue to read through Genesis. You'll, you'll find, and when, you, and when you read through books of the Bible, learn to do that. You know, you'll, you'll see repetition in various times as you're reading through the Bible. And the author's pointing you to things. You'll see, this repetition represents key themes and threads that, that go through the scriptures. Now, what is going on here? We have numerous descendants we have land and we have this blessing that somehow through Abraham, all of the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, we could ask ourselves, how is that going to come to be? And I think most of us can quickly answer that question. We know the answer. Uh, it, this is all going to come to fruition uh, through Christ Jesus. But I want you to be able to see this in the scripture for yourselves. Uh, you, you don't necessarily need to turn here unless you well, I think you probably should uh, turn to, back to Galatians three, which we read this morning in our uh, uh, in our opening scripture reading. Galatians three. Page nine seventy three, if you're using the church's Bible. I want to show you a verse here. Some of you are probably very familiar with, but this verse actually is, uh, it provides us with some commentary on Romans 4.13. 
You'll know, namely, the ver- verse 16, Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is what? It's Christ. It's Christ. Uh, and we all know that answer. I mean, how are all the families of the earth blessed in Abraham? Well, Matthew's genealogy connects Jesus to Abraham, doesn't it? And so does Luke's genealogy connects Jesus to Abraham. That's an important theme here because it is in Christ Jesus that all of the families of the world will be blessed. It's in Christ Jesus that all of the nations of the world. So you see, this promise is expanding beyond the land of Canaan, isn't it? That what's going on in this promise to Abraham is going to happen. It's going to have ramifications and implications to the entire world. Namely, because Christ is not savior of the land of Canaan only, is he? And actually, that isn't really something that would be far-fetched for the ancients to believe because in the ancient world, people believed that, for instance, Assyria had their gods who protected Assyria and prospered Assyria, and Egypt had their gods who uh, protected and prospered Egypt, and then et cetera, et cetera, uh, down the way you go. Uh, But the scriptures make it clear that there's only one God, and he's God of what? The heavens and the earth. And Christ is not simply the savior of the land of Canaan. Uh, He's the savior of the entire world, if you will. And you don't need to turn here. I've got you turning back and forth enough this morning, and we're going to have to do a little bit more before we're done. But I'm just going to read one verse to you that was also in our earlier scripture reading this morning, and it comes from Psalm 2 and verse 8. And this is the reason I wanted to read Psalm 2. Um, You know, in verse 7 of that great psalm, You know, in fact, in the context of this psalm, we have the nations raging, the people plotting in vain, the kings of the earth setting themselves together against who? Against Christ is who they're setting themselves against. You see, it's always been that way. All the way back uh, when Psalm 2 was written, it was that way. And it should be no surprise to us that it's that way today. Uh, It's going to be that way until Christ returns. There's going to be this constant rebellion against Christ and against the things of Christ. And really what this psalm is saying is that this is all futile. Uh, The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. He holds them in derision. Verse seven, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Now here's the Lord speaking to his anointed, if you will. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Here's part of this ancient promise that the, that the king, the anointed, the Messiah, the savior uh, would be savior of the entire world. He would be sovereign of all of the kings of the world. Now, we all know this, but it's nice to be able to say, OK, and when we're talking to somebody at the water cooler at work, we can say, hey, here's a song. And this is where we're getting this from. And, and I don't want you to believe it because I'm saying so. I want you to believe it because you can see it for yourself in the Bible. Your friends won't own it until they can Uh, And so there it is. Now, there's another promise. And again, uh, you don't need to turn here either. But it's another truth that is set for us in Hebrews chapter one at the prologue of the of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, namely the words long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed, and listen to this, heir of all things. So he's not only the savior of the entire world, he is the heir of the world. Well, if you can try to put all that together, and we go back to Romans 4.13, which reads, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world. You see, we're starting to get this all put together. Uh, the promise is to Abraham, and the promise is also to his offspring, who is his offspring. In the singular, his offspring is Christ. The promise is to Abraham, and it is to Christ that he shall be what? Not just the savior of the land of Canaan, but savior of the entire world. And not only savior of the entire world, but heir of the entire world. He inherits the entire world, if you will. It's only fitting uh, as the son of God, uh, as the the firstborn that he receives the inheritance, is it not? Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's go a little further with that. Everybody okay with that? You look like you got it pretty good. Becca's got it. She's got it. She's got her I got it face on. So we must have it. Um, so let's look at Romans 8. 50, uh, Romans, 8 um, Romans 8. Romans 8. Verses 15 to 17. Romans 8 is really, if you ask people, I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite chapter of the Bible, but for many people, Romans 8 is it. It's a really wonderful, marvelous chapter. In verse 15, Romans 8, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Now, in the context of this passage, and we're going to be studying this before long, we'll be in Romans 8. But in this context, uh, Paul speaks about the, the fact that all true believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts. If you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, Paul says you're not of Christ. And here he's making reference again. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and that would be as daughters as well, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then what? Oh, my goodness. What does that say? Did that say what I think it said? What did it say? It said heirs, didn't it? Did we misread that? If children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with you. Fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And listen, if you're in Christ Jesus and you're serious about it, you're walking against the grain of this world. And if you're walking against the grain of this world, you're suffering for it in some way. I promise you, you are. You don't need me to tell you, you are. You'll be reminded of that again tomorrow morning when you go to work. You know that you are. But it's a blessing, isn't it? Heirs, the true believer is an heir with Christ. Christ Jesus receives the entire universe as his inheritance. And what does he do with that? He freely shares it with all who are his. Every one of us. 
Now, a lot of us know this. I know you know this. But we need to be reminded of this, don't we? Especially when hard times come. Now, um, what kind of language? You go back to, uh, you don't need to turn there because we're going to turn somewhere else. And, um, but let me just read Romans 4.13 to you again, just so we can regroup before we go any further. Paul says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, what promise? The promise that he would be heir of the world. We can see where Paul's getting that now, can't we? He's heir of the world. Uh, for the promise to Abraham and his offering that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This language is new heaven and new earth language. This is what this heaven is. What is the inheritance? The inheritance is the new world, the new heaven and the new earth. What is that? Turn to Revelation. Turn to Revelation 21. We'll spend the rest of our time looking at that. There's several places we could have went. We could have went to the later chapters of Isaiah. We could have went to Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66. We could go to Peter's letters and look at this, but the most comprehensive, I think, view we get of this is in John's, in John's um, uh, 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 vision that, that he has on the island of Patmos, which we have recorded for us in the book of Revelation. Uh, the word see is a real important word in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is meant to be seen. Uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of pictures, if you will. And verse twenty or chapter 21, verse 1 uh, John says, I saw, okay, in his vision, I saw a what? A new heaven and a new earth. Uh, see, the, the, many of us know this is where we're going. Uh, this, is, this is what everything is moving towards. And it's, it's really comforting to us to know. And as we start looking at this, you'll see uh, the power of this to comfort you when you're going through a difficult time. Uh, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. He says, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, we could read this, and we could read this to mean that, the, that the, all things as we know them now become completely obliterated, and then God just actually recreates out of nothing all over again. Uh, we could come to that conclusion, I think, uh, but as we uh, take that conclusion and we begin to uh, put it under the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture, I don't think we can hold that conclusion very long. What we have going on here is indeed a new heaven and a new earth. But the point I want to make now is that there is still continuity between what we know right now and what will be. Why would I say that? Well, I could say that from a lot of different places. For one, earlier in the book of Revelation, John looks and he sees people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So he sees Americans. He sees Chinese. He sees Germans and French and all of these people groups from all of these different civilizations that have gone before us and who will come after us if the Lord tells us. You see, there's continuity. There's continuity there. Furthermore, I think that we're, we're surely going to recognize our loved ones when we get to heaven. Why would we recognize our loved ones? Because there's continuity between this 
life, if you will, and the life to come. Uh, there's continuity there. Uh, notice um, the verse here, which really helps us. It confuses us, I think, at the start, but then it helps us. Uh, at the very end of verse 1, it says, And the sea was no more. Now, you see that? The sea was no more. Um, some of us love the beach, don't we? And, and this is not necessarily on the face of it good news. Wait a second, no more ocean. You know, no, no more, you know, I mean, how, how many of you like to walk the beach? I know many of you do. You wouldn't drive 10 hours in the car if you didn't absolutely love to walk the beach. You love those, you love those, the, the, the beach air running through your, uh, your hair and the sound of the seagulls. And, and some of you like to walk and wade in the water. And uh, some of us just really love that. And then you come to this verse and you say, what? A new heaven and a new earth without the seas almost... It's okay. I guess it'll be good. I know it'll be good. Well, listen, the, the sea here is being used figuratively. I don't, I, I think ocean lovers, you're, you're good to go here. There's still going to be a sea. Okay. You're, you're not going to be disappointed because there's no Myrtle Beach. I think you're good. I mean, I don't know if the Myrtle Beach will make it through there, but you're not going to be, you're not going to be disappointed. Uh, the sea is used in scripture oftentimes to be symbolic of evil and chaos. Let me give you one example. Turn back in Revelation to, to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 is this horrifying uh, picture, if you will. And, and you'll notice in verse 1, the word saw happens again. Seeing, when you read the book of Revelation, you're meant to see it. You know, you're meant to see these things. And I what? I saw a beast... Rising out of what? The sea. Uh, the sea is, in Scripture, the sea is often depicted as Eve, the forces of evil and chaos. And that's what's in view in, in Revelation 21, verse 1. I'm convinced of it. You know, I'll give you a couple more examples. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read them for you. Psalm 42, verse 7. The deep calls to deep, but the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your ways have gone over me. You know, there's, that's poetry. The evil and chaos. I mean, uh, it, it, you know, is this is, is Psalm 42 about a, a a mariner who is drowning out in the ocean? I don't think so. I think it's I think it's about someone who has the forces of evil and chaos all over him. That's what's going on there. And then Psalm 69 verse one: Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Uh, again, um, it's, it's symbolism of evil and chaos, if you will. Uh, so what we have here is the symbolism of evil and chaos uh, being lifted, if you will, being taken away. And this fits well with Romans 8.21, which says creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. You know, owning a house is a lot of work. Why? Because it's in a constant state of decay. Uh, currently, our bodies are in a constant state of decay. Everything around us is in a constant state of decay. Why? Because of the bondage of sin. But in the new heavens and the new earth, this is all taken away. And I think it's really helpful for us to try to imagine what, what does it look like? What will it look like? What will the, what will the plant life and the, and the, the, the trees and the, the fruit? And I, I think we're going to see all that stuff. There's continuity. And what is it going to look like once it's been set free and completely and thoroughly renovated from all aspects of sin. What about our bodies? 
The resurrection body. You see, there's more continuity to right now. What body is going to be resurrected? It's your body that's going to be resurrected. It's going to be resurrected to a glorious body. It's going to be an a, 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 a absolutely magnificent body. Uh, you're not going to have to spend hours in the gym uh, because you're going to have, you're going to have this, this beautiful body. And everyone else is going to have one too. And uh, it's a body that's going to be set free from the bondage of sin and decay. And every aspect of this world is going to be set free from, from bondage and decay. And that leads us to verse 2. And I saw, Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And look at this last. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is in view here? The church is in view here. And the church is fitted, if you will, to be the bride of the king. This is not only wedding language, it's royal wedding language. You know, even, even in our weddings, what color does the bride typically wear for a wedding dress? It's white. Why? It's supposed to represent purity, but in this life it hardly does that. Especially today in this age. But not here. Not here. You see, the bride is going to be perfectly pure. This is where God is taking us. Into this perfect purity. It's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it? Perfectly pure. And appropriate for the Savior to take our hand. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. From the throne. From the throne. What's that all about? A throne represents sovereignty, doesn't it? Remember, we're supposed to see this. A throne represents sovereignty. What does he say? What is being said from the throne? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now you recognize that language, don't you? You remember our studies in the covenant. What is the covenant that is made with, what is the covenant that God makes with his people? I will be your God. You shall be my people and I will dwell with you. You see, he's faithful. Someone say, well, that's way back in the Old Testament. Yeah, it's way back in the Old Testament. God doesn't change. This is what he's on about. He will dwell with his people. He will be our God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of you have been spending a lot of time crying. That's one of the reasons why we're here this morning. That's why we're in this passage. Look at the next part. Death shall be no more. 
No more of that. I think of this passage all the time. Every time I drive in my car and I drive and I see an animal laying along the road, what a horrific sight that is. It's a reminder of the mess we've made of this world. But then it brings me this promise. Death one day will be no more. Not here in the new heavens and the new earth. And neither shall there be what? You read it. What's it say? Neither shall there be what? Neither shall there be mourning. That terrible pain of grief that has gripped some of us. It's not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. No, no more crying. No more pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What are the former things? It's this stuff that has passed away. All of this stuff, that's what's passing away. And when all of this stuff passes away, when the curse of sin is removed, when uh, the, the bondage of sin and decay is removed, oh my goodness, what's this place going to be like? What will it be like? What will it be like? Verse 5. Here's the throne again. And he was seated on the throne. Why is the throne repeated again? Because what's it saying to us? What is the throne? We're supposed to see it. What do we see? We see a throne. What does the throne tell us? Sovereignty. He who was seated on the throne. Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega being the last. God is the God of the beginning. He's got this thing started. He's the God of the end. He will see it to its completion. Listen, there is no way that this could possibly fail. This is the most sure and certain language that we could ever run across. He who is seated on the throne has said, this is where things are going. This is the way that it's going to be. This is what's going to happen. That's what we're meant to see here. The certainty of this. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, this is where God is taking you. This is where he's taking you. And I will be his God. And he will be my what? My son or my daughter. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's widely believed today. I've really observed this, having so many funerals, so many funerals since Thanksgiving. I see it over and over again. It's widely believed that everyone's going to heaven. Get that out of your head. That's a dangerous thing to think. Because if you think that, you're not going to reach out for Jesus. These promises are only good and can only be obtained by faith in Christ Jesus. This awaits those who are in Christ And it's easy to see as we look around this world, not everyone is in Christ. Is that true enough? You see, if we think everybody's good to go, we're not going to evangelize. We're not going to tell people about Jesus. And there's no real reason for them to reach out for Jesus, is there? We can't adopt that. We mustn't adopt that. We must never adopt that. 
Now, many other things could be said by way of application here, and I've, I've made a lot of application. could probably wrap it up now, but there's a couple of things I want to say just in closing kind of quick. I, I have what I call three R's, if you will, by way of application. I mean, this promise of a new heaven and new earth, it realigns our priorities, it resizes earthly riches, and it renews adoration and thanksgiving. Let me, let me say something brief about each one of these. It realigns our priorities. I mean, looking at this and looking at the promise of this uh, and believing the promise of this actually realigns everything, doesn't it? Our priorities okay, are designed around our goals. What goal do you have? That's how, you know, if your goal is to pay your bills on time, then, you know, your priority is going to work is going to be a priority to you. If you don't care about that, then work might not be such a priority. But if you care about that, you're going to make work a priority. It's just one example. And our goals are very carefully designed by us in order to secure happiness. And there's nothing wrong with that. God's made us this way. We design goals and we put goals before ourselves so that we'll be happy. That's the way God has wired us up. And our goals, our true goals in life, is what establishes our priorities. What are we going to do with our time and how are we going to manage it? It's going to be established by whatever goal we have. Whatever that goal is, whatever, wherever you think you're going to find your happiness, that's how you're going to manage your time. If we believe in a new heaven and a new earth, our priorities are going to look radically different than if we believe that what's before us, the here and now, is all that there is. It's going to look radically different. I mean, how we use our time, our money, our leisure, our attention, energy, everything is going to look radically different, isn't it? But belief in a new heaven and earth, I mean, that will fill you with hope. And that will fill you with joy. And now we suddenly see, you know, the joy, it brings happiness. Our happiness is, is not really, lasting happiness is not really here. We get we, we get glimpses of it here. We get, we get snapshots of it here. But ultimately, the happiness that awaits in the new heavens and the new earth uh, is so much greater than what is here. So our, if, if your joy is in Christ, your priorities are going to be radically different. If your true joy is in Christ, than if it isn't. So this realigns our priorities. It also resizes earthly riches. I mean, if we imagine that there's no new heaven or new earth, we'll put all of our hopes and riches in this world. That's what we do. That's what we default to in our unbelief, isn't it? All we have is the here and now, so we need to make the best of it. If there is no new heaven and new earth, then we need to try to create a new heaven and new earth here. And that's what we do, isn't it? Why do we do that? Because we were designed for the new heaven and the new earth. That's why we do that. We've all been designed for that. We've been designed to want to be happy. We've been designed to want to be content. But that happiness and contentment can only be found in Christ Jesus. I mean, God is showing us real riches here that they lie ahead beyond our current sight. And he's showing us that these riches are far more valuable than earthly riches. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew six nineteen to 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. And again in John 6, 27, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, undoubtedly, one of the reasons we have so much pain in this life, you know, we, we sometimes will ask ourselves, sometimes people ask me, why does it have to hurt like this? And man, I, don't, I don't like giving answers to that question, but there's one I think we're safe to give. And I, I, and I think you'll find this from common experience. What does pain help us do? It helps us let go. Sometimes it's the only thing that will enable us to let go. You see, God has got to get us off of the things that we're on so he can get us on to the things we ought to be on. He's got to pry us apart from love of the world so that our hearts will be devoted to him. And Christ, they can't be both. They can't be both. And pain does that. I mean, when pain comes into your life, you don't care about your house and your cars and all that stuff. It helps you let go. And in this respect, it's, it's valuable. I mean, there's a couple of parables, a couple of my favorite parables in Matthew 13, the parable of the pearl of great price. You know, it's a guy, you know, he's in search of fine pearls and he finds one. And oh, this is the mother pearl of all pearls. I've got to have this pearl. And what does he go and do? Sells everything that he has so that he can have that pearl. Or a person search of fine treasures, going through a field and he finds treasure in the field and he, he hides the treasure and he goes out and sells everything that he has so he can buy the field, right? Christ is the pearl. Christ is the treasure. Sometimes pain, for me, I mean, it, it took a lot, an enormous amount of pain had to come into my life for me to let go of the things I was holding on to so closely so that I would let go of things that I could never keep. Many of those things were worthy in themselves. But God did this gracious thing. He caused me a bunch of pain so that I would let go of those things, so that I would grab a hold of Christ, who I will never lose. And if you're holding on to Christ, you're never going to, ever going to, Bereave loss of Jesus Christ. You're always going to have it. So you see, that's something you can never lose. So this realigns our priorities. It resizes earthly riches. And lastly, it renews adoration and thanksgiving. Hopefully, as you've been hearing all of this, you've, you can't help but your heart begins to just adore Jesus in, in a fresh way, doesn't it? I mean, I don't need to say much about that, do I? I hope not. I only got a sentence here. If you want me to say more, I can. You know that. You probably don't. But, I mean, meditation on the new heavens and the new earth deepens our adoration and thanksgiving to God, doesn't it? Of course it does. And again, this promised inheritance is available only to those who are in Christ. Get it out of your heads that, that we can live happily you know, fast and loose with sin any way we want through this life and have these things, that isn't going to happen. It's only as we embrace Christ Jesus as our Savior and we put our trust in Him that these things are ours. But these are good things, aren't they? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord. And I pray, Father, especially, Father, for 
some of us who are really grieving this morning, Father, that, Lord, you'd press these things upon the heart. Father, the, the promise that you hold before us that if we're in Christ Jesus, this grief will stop one of these days. And, Father, we recognize that it's not that far away, for our lives are so short. And soon, Father, this, uh, this grief will come to an end if we're in Christ Jesus. The mourning, the pain, the crying, the tears, this world that's groaning, as Paul says in Romans 8, it's groaning and eagerly awaits the consummation of all things, that it may be set apart and freed from the bondage of sin and decay. Father, you will bring these things to fruition. And we look forward, Father, to the new heaven and the new earth. Help us to put our minds upon these things, Father, as we uh, find ourselves uh, in the grips of grief and pain and in the grips of struggle and in the grips of trials and in the grips of all of those things. May we look to the future that we have in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that, Lord, this will fill our hearts with fresh adoration and thanksgiving, that it will realign our priorities that it will renew us, O oh Father. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.